Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you again this morning and we thank you that you are a God who meets us in our deepest needs. And the unspoken things that we struggle with in our lives and our hearts that we cannot put words to, Lord, you understand, you know. And there is a great emptiness in us, Lord, that we have. The only thing that can fill that emptiness is you. And so, Lord, this morning as we open your word, we ask, give us fresh eyes to see your word. We ask, Lord, that you'd not only feed our minds, but feed our souls through your word. And, Lord, that you would fill us to overflowing with who you are and the great truths of what you've done for us. May we be strengthened in our faith in you. The roots of our faith would grow down deep. And, Lord, that we would be filled with the joy inexpressible, a peace unsurpassable that can only come from you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your strong and majestic name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the year 1924 found Adolf Hitler serving a five-year prison term for leading a political revolt. It was during this time that he dictated his book, Mein Kampf, meaning My Struggle, consisting of some 15 chapters, around 720 pages, Hitler carefully crafted his autobiographical manifesto explaining his disturbing political beliefs, crazed theories, and troubled feelings. Fueled by what could only be described as a dark and demonic passion, Hitler wove together the tapestry of his terrifying plans to conquer Europe and then the world. When it was first published, most people didn't think much of it. Maybe interesting, but not much more. Certainly not life-changing. However, in a short amount of time, this book became the Bible of National Socialism, Nazism, in Germany's Third Reich. And it is said for every single word that was written in that book, 125 people brutally lost their lives. We should never underestimate the power of words. The words of a doctor, for instance, or maybe a judge or a parent or a school teacher have tremendous power in our lives to alter and to shape our lives. But this morning, I want to talk to you about another book that stands in marked contrast, as day does tonight, compared to Hitler's Mein Kampf. Actually, it's more of a letter than it is a book. And instead of destroying lives, it has offered life and hope and peace and joy and meaning and guidance to more people than we could possibly imagine. The message of this letter essentially surrounds the immeasurable significance of the death, the burial, the significance, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
an event that took place some 30 years before the letter itself was written in a remote, dusty place known as the region of the Roman province of Judea. The original destination of the letter was to a small group of unknown believers in Rome. When the letter first arrived, very few were interested in it. At the time, it, its significance paled in comparison with the world's class writings of, of the great philosophers, the poets, the imperial decrees that were all the talk of the town. But it wasn't long before the message of this letter began to shine its bright rays of hope on a dark world like the rising of the morning sun. One author noted this letter has had a far larger impact on its readers than the volumes of all those Roman writers put together. Well, by now you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, of course, the book of Romans that we've been spending a number of weeks in. And Romans is known as Paul's magnum opus, his greatest work. And we know, of course, that Paul is not the actual author behind this. He's the human pen. But the Holy Spirit wrote the book of Romans. And this morning we're going to look at a portion of the book of Romans that is considered by many the most theologically significant portion of Scripture in the entirety of the Bible. The most important verses in all of Scripture. So open with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. And these 11 verses contain the core essence of what the gospel is all about. And the Apostle Paul is going to show us that the only way we can be right with God, no matter who you are, is through a personal faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And as I read these words, these 11 verses for you this morning, I want you to listen. And listen for some words that Paul uses repeatedly throughout these verses. Because words matter. And these words are key words that I want you to understand about your Christian faith that will deepen your faith, draw you closer to the Lord, and bring a light of joy and strength in your walk with Him. So in verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? 
Yes, for the Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Eleven verses that are probably the most significant theological words in the entirety of the Bible because they, they put together the message of the gospel of God in a way that we cannot escape its meaning. But I want you to understand it this morning because it's so significant. So significant. Did you hear some words that he repeated again and again? The word faith, pastoral. He repeated some nine times throughout these 11 verses. Or the word righteous or justified, justifier, justify. Some eight times. They're all from the same word, dikaio, which means to make righteous or righteous. Other words in there that I want you to notice, verse 24, he talked about grace and redemption. Verse 25, he used a word that's a 50-cent theological word that some theologian probably imagined in the ivory tower of his study, propitiation. Can you say propitiation? It's a word that's used a couple of times in Scripture, and yet these words put together form incredible theological meaning that help us understand our faith and that I want you to understand as well. These words are a matter of life and death, and they're vital to understanding the gospel. I love the words of Mark Twain who said the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. I like that. The better we understand the words of God that he uses to explain his gospel, the better we'll understand what it means to be right with God. So what does, what does God's gospel do? I want to look at some key answers to this question in these 11 verses, let me give you four things I think this, that God's gospel does. One, it restores our self-worth, our value, our significance, our purpose. Why are you here? Who are you? Does that really matter? The gospel restores that. Second, it removes our self-righteousness. Third, it reveals God's love. And fourth, from beginning to end, God's gospel is about faith. So first of all, it restores our self-worth. Look at verses 21 through 22. Now, you have to listen carefully as I begin to unpack this because I want you to really follow what Paul is saying. His book and the book of Romans is very logically, logically put together, and I want you to begin to see how this all thematically fits together. So he says in verse 21, But now, mark those words, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. Those words, but now, mark a, an oblique turn, a sharp turn. This is though Paul is walking out of this dark, cavernous prison into the bright, open sunlight of freedom. But now, whenever you see the word but in Anything that's written, it always means a contrast of thought. Suddenly, whoever the author is, they're going to change their thinking. There's going to be a big change. And so Paul says in verse 21, but now. Well, what's the importance of that? Well, after spending almost three chapters building a case against all people, showing their, their universal sinfulness, 
and therefore their universal need for salvation. The Apostle Paul spells out the only way that we can begin, be right with God begins with the words, but now. But now, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifested. The word righteous is important because from the very beginning of Paul's letter, he's been weaving this theme of righteousness all the way through. From chapter 1 all the way to chapter 16, we're going to see the righteousness of God being woven through this letter. It, in fact, is the theme of the book of Romans. He first mentions it in, verses one, in verse, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and he says these familiar verses. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it is revealed the righteousness from God from faith to faith. Now what Paul is talking about in this righteousness here is not an attribute of God so much or the character of God, but rather an imparted righteousness that he gives to the person who has faith in Christ. That God literally infuses his righteousness into you the moment you trust Christ. And when God does that, based on your faith in Christ, God literally restores a sense of self-worth, a significance in your life. Why is that? Because he makes you or restores you as you were intended to be in the first place. None of this will make sense, though, until you see your need for God's righteousness. And so Paul spends three chapters in verse 18... Beginning in verse 18, he says this, But the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And he spends three chapters exposing the sewage of sin that runs through our veins like the sewage in the lines under a city, showing us our sinfulness before a holy God. And when he does, he hits you no matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a pagan. It doesn't matter whether you're a self-righteous moralist or whether you're a religious zealot. He shows us thoroughly that by act, by choice, and by birth, you are a sinner in, who deserves God's punishment because of your sin, his wrath. I'll tell you what, I am so glad to be done with these three chapters. I am so done with talking with about sin. In fact, last week I remember complaining to somebody, I'll be so glad we're done with sin. I don't even want to give this message because I'm so tired of being talking about sin. You know, walking through these chapters kind of reminds me, so to speak, of trying to survive three rounds with Muhammad Ali. You'd never make it. Paul has thoroughly worked us over showing us both our lost condition and our need for a Savior in these entirety of these chapters. But then he goes, but now. I'm so glad those words are there. But now. Everything's going to change now. If you've been feeling bogged down and depressed and oppressed by sin, 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 you can take a deep breath. But now. God is going to show us the way out of this sin fallen condition we find ourselves in. And God is going to restore this sense, of self, uh, this sense of righteousness that we long for in our lives, a sense of self-worth. Did you know that when you come to Christ, a lot of things happen inside of you the moment you trust Christ? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 13 and 14, or chapter 1, 13 and 14, he says that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is, God the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. 
In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says that when you trust Christ, you're now seated with Christ in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father. God has raised you to the positional level, the same as His Son. All those things to say this, that when you come to Christ, God restores your self-worth. It is amazing when you look in the world today, the world is starving for a sense of meaning and purpose, aren't they? They're searching for reasons of why am I here? They're exploring. They're experimenting. They're looking for an answer of why am I here? But you'll never find value in your life if you look for it in drugs, if you look for it in alcohol. Some of you are workaholics. You'll never find your value, your sense of self-worth in that work. Some of you make your family what you worship. You'll never find your ultimate self-worth, your ultimate value in your family, though they're significant. But you'll never find what your heart really hungers for in just your family. Some of you think, well, I'll find it in relationships, in a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You'll never find it there either. God says the heart hunger that you have for a sense of being restored, of your self-worth, can only come from my filling your life through your trust in Jesus Christ. You see, it's interesting when you look around the world, you're going to meet people, and you probably have co-workers like this, that put on a very good front. But behind all of our masks that we wear of confidence and self-assurance, I guarantee you behind every mask that you see, there lies an insecure heart with a nagging consciousness of self-doubt. Why? Because only Christ can fulfill that sense of self-worth, that sense of meaning and value and significance in your life that you long for. So what does God's gospel do? First of all, God imparts his righteousness into us and he restores that. And Paul's going to show us how this works in three incredible truths. First of all, he says, this righteousness that is imparted to us, it is given apart from the law. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Listen very carefully what Paul is saying here. He's saying the righteousness that God has for you, that is the right standing for God that he wants to give you, does not come from the law. It's separate from the law. You can't dig down deep into your bag of good works and say, here God, look at these good works I've done. It doesn't work that way. It does not come from what you do or don't do. It comes from trusting Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. I've been reading through the Old Testament here, taking my time walking through the book of Leviticus. And if you read through the Old Testament, the Old Testament talks about the law a lot. And there are three aspects to the law that you see uh, repeated throughout the Old Testament. There's the moral law. There is the civil law. There's the ceremonial law. And what Paul is saying is very significant here. That you can never attain the righteousness that God has for you by keeping the moral law. You can never attain the righteousness that God has for you by keeping the civil law. You can never attain the righteousness that God has for you by keeping the ceremonial law. So you can be a good person, that's not going to be good enough. You can be a civil person, that's not good enough. You can be a person that is drowning in ceremony, being baptized, going to church, going through all the ceremonial things, but that will never be enough. God has a righteousness. He's going to impart to you a right standing with him apart from the law. 
So Paul says, listen, this righteousness that I have for you is not from the law. It's from God. Second, he says that it was known by the law and the prophets. He says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, this isn't new. This isn't a new work that the New Testament is talking about, that the Old Testament never did talk about it. He's saying this is not new at all. In fact, the greatest patriarch of all the Old Testament, Abraham, not only knew about this righteousness, but experienced this righteousness. Abraham, who lived 400 years before the law ever came along, it says in Genesis chapter 16, verse 5, Abraham believed and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham believed and God imparted his righteousness into Abraham. He not only knew it, he experienced it. But so did the other patriarchs, Moses and David and so on. They understood. So what Paul is explaining here, he's going to illustrate in chapter 4 through the life of Abraham. But it was not a secret. It's not new. It was known by the law and the prophets. And third, it does not come from within us. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all those who believe. Listen carefully, he says, the righteousness of God through faith. This is a righteousness that comes from God, not from you. You can't, you can't uh, manipulate it. You can't manifest it or manufacture it inside of you through positive thinking. This is a righteousness that comes from God to you. It's not something you can create inside of yourself. It comes directly from God. So what is this righteousness, this restored sense of self-worth? Well, Paul says it's apart from the law. It doesn't come from the law. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. It was known by the prophets and witnessed by them all the way in the Old Testament. It's repeatedly talked about. And as, as well, it doesn't come from within you. You can't manufacture it within you. It comes from God. So Paul says that when you come to Christ, you have a self-worth, a new worth. You have significance. Can I just be very real with you for a moment? Studies have shown again and again, and we see it in how people live their lives. Most people don't think much of themselves. They live their lives feeling depressed and oppressed, and they kind of mope about their days, feeling like they're insignificant, they're just nobody. And maybe that's been ingrained in you from your parents. Maybe that's been ingrained in you from your spouse. Maybe that's been ingrained in you from society. But the Bible tells us that when you come to Christ, you are not a person of insignificance. You are a person of tremendous significance. You are God's child. And he restores that sense of self-worth. Now, why do I say this? Because here's the problem. Is that a lot of times people come to Christ, but they don't stop seeking their sense of self-worth from the world. And you need to stop doing that. You're trying to find satisfaction in your job. Well, there's a level of satisfaction that's okay to have. But if you're looking for your ultimate satisfaction to come from your job, you'll never have it. Some people are looking for that satisfaction from their marriage. You'll never have it. Some people are looking for that satisfaction in their children. You'll never have it. Stop looking to the world for the fulfillment of the self-worth that you want. Start looking to Christ and understanding what it means that you're a child of God. When you understand that, 
Your life begins to radically and significantly change, and people see it inside of you. Your self-worth comes from God in the gift of righteousness that he imparts in you that can only come through your faith in Christ. So, first of all, Paul says God's gospel restores our self-worth, our significance. Second, it removes our self-righteousness. I like this. Now, you may not like this, but I like this. It removes all our self-righteousness. Listen to what he says. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You see, one of the greatest deceptions that we have as believers is not only do we look to the world for that fulfillment of self-worth, even though we come to Christ, but one of the deceptions we oftentimes have as we have been a believer for a while is our lives change, and rightly so, they should change. But what happens when you walk with the Lord for a while, sometimes people begin to think, you know what, I am such an amazing person. I'm so blessed. God loves me so much. I'm such a wonderful person. That's why God chose to love me. And God says, what? If that's the case, then you need to go back to your scriptures. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified as a gift of His grace. You see, the reason that you're saved, the reason that God chose to love you, the reason that God chose to forgive you of your sins is purely and only because of His grace. That's why. Now, you should change. You should become a better person. But in no way does that merit God's salvation in your life. Now, why is this so important for me to, to just kind of to hammer on for a moment? Let me tell you why. Because there are numerous cults out there that are incredibly successful. And the number one person they focus on that they're successful with are those who are nominal Christians. Those who say, I, I, I'm a Christian. I was a Baptist. I was a Methodist. I grew up in church. And because they don't understand the significance of these words theologically in their faith, not just up here, but down here, they haven't sunk down into their hearts because they don't understand their easy prey to the cults. And so God wants you to understand these words that we're going to talk about that are so significant to your faith. One of those words, he says, being justified is a gift of his grace. What does the word justification mean? Well, what does it mean? Some people think it means just as if I'd never sinned, but that's not true. Justification does not mean that God is saying you're now innocent. No, God is saying now you're righteous, and there's a big difference between the two. You see, justification is the act of God by the sovereign God whereby he declares the believing sinner to be right with him even though that sinner is still sinning. Justification is an act of a sovereign God whereby he declares righteous the believing sinner even though that sinner is still in a believing state. In other words, when you came to Christ, guess what? You were still sinning, weren't you? Some of you spun off a bar stool and here you are, right? You were still in a place of sinning, right? Right? Okay, I want to make sure you're awake. 
By the way, I can't hear you downstairs, so I hope I can hear you too. The fact is, when you came to Christ, you were still sinning. You were in the middle of your sin, and God said, I'm going to snatch you out of that sin, though you don't deserve it, but by sovereign act of grace, because you're believing in me, I'm going to declare you righteous, not innocent, though you are forgiven of your sins. But more importantly, he declares you righteous. That's what's significant. So justification simply means this, that now God raises you in that righteousness to a position equal to his son. You go, what? Yes. The moment you trust Christ, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says that, that our lives are hidden in Christ and we've been seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ. When you trust Christ, God raises you to the position of righteousness of his Son. God does not declare you innocent so much as he declares you now righteous. He restores that self-worth and he guarantees it by an eternal position with him in heaven. Some people confuse justification with a pardon. But it's not a pardon either. Because if your pardon is a criminal, you're still a criminal. And the record of your criminality will follow you all the days of your life. Not so with justification. With justification, God forgets your past, your present and future record of sins. He never treats us as sinners when we accept him. Because justification means that we are in an eternal right standing with him. You never have to be afraid of God saying, I've grown tired of you. I'm just kind of done with your sin. I don't like you anymore. I thought I would, but I really don't like you anymore. We never have to worry about God rejecting you. I don't know about you, but how many of you experienced rejection in your life? Maybe it was a, a first love that you had. Maybe it was a job that you had. Maybe it was a friendship that you had, but you've experienced rejection. And more importantly, you experienced a rejection in a relationship that you thought, I thought this relationship was good. I thought it was secure. I thought I would never experience this. And yet you did. Now here's the danger. On one hand, God says, I'll never, never, never reject you. But on the other hand, all your earthly experience has taught you that people, relationships, sooner or later, will reject you. And what God wants you to know is this. You never have to worry about him rejecting you. You can let go of that fear, that anxiety in your heart. That when you sin, when you mess up, when you do the wrong thing, God's not going to say, I've had it. I'm done. You're finished. Out. We never have to worry about God saying that. And God wants you to have that sense of security. And that's what justification means. That you're now in an eternal right standing with God, though you may have never experienced it here in this life, but through faith and you know in your heart, you can trust God and take him at his word. You never have to worry about God rejecting you again. Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6? For he who began a good work in you will complete it. God will complete the work he began in you, whether you give up on yourself, whether others give up on you, whether... No matter what happens in your life, God will never give up on you. That's justification. And this justification, by the way, takes place by God's grace. Listen to what he says. Being justified is a gift of his grace. Grace. 
What an amazing word. Grace. This is a word that is important to explain here. Because the word that Paul uses here is not the typical word for gift of grace. The word gift here is dorian, which means a gift given without cause, for no reason, unearned, undeserved. He uses the same word in John chapter 15, verse 25, when he tells the disciples, just as the world hated me without cause, so the world will hate you without cause. But Jesus used the same word somewhere else as well, in a very significant place. How many of you remember the conversation Jesus has with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4? In John chapter 4, there's a woman who has been married five times, divorced five times. And she's lived with a man now who's not her husband. And she comes to the well during the middle of the day, the heat of the day, when nobody else is going to come. Why? Because she knows the rest of society doesn't like her. And she goes to the well by herself. And little did she know that God had a divine ambush all set up. She came to the well, and here's this Jewish rabbi leaning against the well. He's exhausted. And he begins a conversation with her with a question that no Jew would ever ask a Samaritan woman. Give me a drink from your vessel. That was unheard of. You'd never do that. Why? Because Samaritans had several marks against them. One, they were Samaritans. They were half-breeds. They were less than Jewish. They had perverted the law. And so the Samaritans were a hated people among the Jews. And no Jew, let alone a rabbi, would ask another Samaritan for a drink from their own vessel. It was just unthinkable. And yet Jesus is there, and he asks her for a drink. And they begin a conversation. As they begin this conversation, she learns that Jesus knows all about her. That's significant. He knows everything about her. And though he's never asked her a question, she know, he knows everything about her life. Jesus knows everything about your life too. He knows all the failures. He knows all the mistakes. He knows all the things you've done wrong. And just like the Samaritan woman, Jesus speaks to her and he says to her, he's offering her what is called the gift of God. If you knew what the gift of God is that is standing before you, you would accept it. Eternal water. But that word gift right there is the same word that Paul uses as a gift given without cause, undeserved. And so God says this gift of salvation that he has for you this gift of righteousness and justification is undeserved without cause. In other words, God doesn't look down from heaven. Just so I seal this and make sure that we really drive this home, God doesn't look down from heaven and look at you and go, you know, you're so handsome. You're so beautiful. You're amazing. Oh, you're just so smart, so brilliant. God does not look at you and choose you based on anything like that. It is without cause. God, in other words, says, even though you have nothing of value to offer me, in fact, all you have to offer me is your failure, your brokenness, your pain, your inadequacy, and you have nothing of value to offer me, yet I choose to love you and accept you unconditionally. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Pretty powerful. One of my favorite passages that probably 
illustrates this so amazing is Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, of course, we recognize that as the first five books of the Bible and, and the second giving of the law. In other words, this is in light of Israel's failure. They've broken all the commandments. They've rejected God. And so God is giving them the law a second time as they prepare to enter the land. And God just has kind of a little pep talk with them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And he says to them, he says, listen, the reason I chose you is not because you were more numerous than any other peoples, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. Listen to what he says. Do you know why I chose you? Because the Lord loved you. Why did God choose you? Because. No, really, why did God choose you? Because. No, really, why did God choose you? Because. God chose you in his grace because. What I want to save you from is any kind of notion of self-righteousness, of looking at yourself saying, you know, I'm such an amazing person. I'm so good. No wonder why God had to choose me. I want to save you the embarrassment and the pain of just saying, listen, it's not because of you that God chose you. You had nothing to offer him but your failure, your pain, your misery, your inadequacy. Nothing to offer him but brokenness. And yet he says, I choose to love you, accept you unconditionally, and give you my gift of righteousness. Pretty amazing, isn't it? And yet God chooses to do that for us. Paul is saying that Christ came in order to give us this righteousness. But there's one other word that I want us to understand. It's found in verse 24. It's the word redemption. Redemption simply means that when Christ died on the cross, he paid all the price for all your sin in your life, past, present, and future. Now, this word redemption is a word that his, Paul's readers were very familiar with because they, grew up, they lived in a world that was filled with millions and millions of slaves. In fact, most of the world were in slavery. And they understood well what it meant to be in the slave market and to be bought and sold by a master who could do with them whatever they wanted even put them to death if they wanted to. But to buy a slave in the slave market meant to ransom them or to redeem them. And Paul uses this language intentionally because what he's saying is that Jesus redeemed you. He bought you from the slave market of sin to be bought and sold no more, to set you free. Now, what does that mean for you and for me? What it means is this, is that many of you have lived your life in the, in the power of, the clutches of sin for many years. And you've lived your life in the fear of the guilt of your sin, the penalty of that sin. When Christ set you free, he ransomed you from the power and the penalty of your sin to be free forevermore. What that means now is that you have a power within you that is the Holy Spirit inside of you. You can say no to the sin that once overpowered your life. It means that you don't need to let the past dictate your future anymore. Does that make sense to you? I want to drive this home just a little bit with you, just because I want you to really understand this. What happens for a lot of us is we allow the past, past failures, to dictate our present success in life. And it keeps us from really living the life that Christ has called us to live. It's not because God hasn't done the work in you that needs to be done. It's because you haven't done the work of believing, accepting what God has done for you. 
You're too busy looking at the world, trying to figure out your self-worth, trying to make sense from your past. And God says, let it go. The past is done. I heard of a conversation between a couple of guys who were talking. One man said to his friend, hey, say, you look really depressed. What are you thinking about? My future. Was his answer. Then his friend said, well, what makes it look so hopeless? My past. You see, many of you are living with the past still bogging you down today in your walk with Christ. You're allowing the past failures, the past guilt, the past things you've done to interfere, interfere with the life that God has called you to live now. You're free from the power and the penalty of sin in Jesus Christ. That's what redemption means. So third, God's gospel does this. It reveals his love. Verses 25 through 26. Paul says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. There's that word, propitiation, in Christ's blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because the, in forbearance God had passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Would you circle that word propitiation right there? I know that sounds like a 50-cent word that uh, some theologian had to think up, but it's a very, very scriptural and important word for us to understand, propitiation. It's one of the most important concepts we can understand, not just in the New Testament, but the entirety of the Old Testament. It's used twice in the New Testament, but its lesson, its teaching is seen throughout pervasive in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it comes from an important word, that we're about to celebrate this morning. It comes from Yom Kippur, meaning the day of covering, the day of atonement or at one mint. Yom Kippur was that time once a year in the Jewish law that God had set aside where the high priest would sacrifice the Passover lamb for the sins of the nation of Israel and for himself. And that lamb would be for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. It became so well known in the Jewish nation that they called it Yoma, the day, the day. And there's a powerful illustration of this that I want to take the time to walk through with you found in Leviticus chapter 16. It's really the heart of what this atonement means. In Leviticus chapter 16, I wish we had time to do an entire message on this, but it's so powerful. In Leviticus chapter 16, you read about a sacrifice. In fact, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament point to Christ, but you read about a sacrifice that, that very um, powerfully gives us an object lesson of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and forgiveness for us. It says in Leviticus chapter 16 that the high priest would select two goats, He'd bring them before the, the tent of entrance that is before God in God's presence. And one goat would be selected to be slaughtered. And the other goat would be selected for another purpose. But the first goat, they would slaughter that goat and they would take the blood as well as the blood of a bull. And the high priest, the Jewish high priest, would go into the holy place, past the holy place, into the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was at, and he would sprinkle the blood of that goat on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because inside the Ark were the Ten Commandments. 
And man had broken those Ten Commandments. Therefore, a life had to be sacrificed for the breaking of those Ten Commandments. And so the high priest would put the blood on the Ark of the Covenant as an atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel. So he'd do that with the first goat. The second goat, he would do something absolutely amazing. The second goat, he'd put both hands firmly on the head of that goat. In fact, the idea behind the word suggests that he pressed down firmly. And the idea there is that he symbolically transferred the sins of the nation onto the goat. And then he would take that goat. There would be a person standing at the ready. And that person would take that goat and lead this goat way out into the wilderness, way away from the camp. Some people believe, in fact, they'd make him go over a cliff to make sure they didn't come back to camp. But this goat became known as the scapegoat. And it was a powerful object lesson that God was showing the nation of Israel that as far as the east is from the west, so I have separated transgressions from you. Psalm 103, verse 12, that God is separating our sins from us. Now, what's important for us is that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. When Christ died on the cross, he is the fulfillment of what that goat was merely the object lesson of. Jesus separates you from all your sin as far as the east is from the west, never, never to come again into your life. You see, John understood this apostle, or the, John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus. Remember what, Jesus, what he said to Jesus as Jesus was coming to him? In John chapter 1, verse 29, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you want to understand the book of Leviticus, all of the sacrifices, all of the offerings in the book of Leviticus prefigure, they, shadow, they are a shadow of which Christ is the fulfillment of. That's why they're there. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of them. In other words, that Jesus took the entire weight of all our sin, of all the world, of all time, and on his shoulders, and he died on the cross as the object of God's wrath for our sin. That's what atonement is all about. Paul understood this. He says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. Listen to what he says. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ came to be the one who would take all the punishment for your sin and my sin and become the scapegoat, the escape goat of our sin. Why did God do that? Because you're so handsome and so beautiful and so smart? No. God did that because he chose to love you. Do you know how many people I talk to who will say, you know, I, God couldn't forgive me. I meet people that have done some horrendous things in their lives and they'll tell you about them because they're hurting they feel that somehow if I talk about it it'll make it go away but it doesn't but they feel like that's an inseparable wall between them and God they've done these horrendous things maybe they've killed somebody I've, I've talked to combat veterans who have taken lives who said God could never forgive me for doing that I said yes he can and you have to keep reminding them, and I have to pray for them, that God will do that work in their lives to realize no matter what you've done, God chooses to forgive you, no matter how great that sin is in your life. And I've watched men, I've watched people come to Christ who have done incredible things in their lives, and the freedom and the joy, the peace that they know, because they take God at his word, 
and believed for the very first time, he who knew no sin became sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God. And I watched their lives change. Why? Because God loves him. God loves you. Now, I may just be uh, stepping on some theological toes here that I want to be very exact, but let me just say this to you. Would you say this? God loves me. Now, some people go, don't say that. Why? God loves you. That's why he sent his son. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son. There are some people who like to teach that, you know what, don't ever say that to somebody. Don't ever say that they can trust Christ because what if they're not elect and you give them a false security? I want to go, have you read your Bible? God loves you. That's why he sent his son. Now the work that you are to do is to believe in that. No matter where you come from, would you just let me talk to you right now where you're at? Some of you are going, I'm not sure I really believe this. I've done some pretty horrible things in my life. Would you stop beating yourself up? Would you accept God's forgiveness? That's why he came. Now, some of you, I I accept that forgiveness, but there are things in my life that I don't think God could forgive me. God could never forget this or that. Would you stop God has forgiven you of all your sins. That was a radical, radical transformation in my thinking when I began to read Scripture for the first time and I realized Jesus died for all my sins. He died for all your sins, no matter what they are. You can enjoy the freedom and the peace that Christ has given you because of His forgiveness. He died on the cross for all of your sin, past, present, and future. Well, finally, Paul says, God's gospel begins and ends with faith. Verses 27 to 31 are a series of rhetorical-like questions. He says, where then is the boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law by faith or through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. In other words, we put the law in its right place. So the final thing God's gospel does is it removes any room whatsoever for boasting. How many of you ever met some arrogant people in your life? Aren't they fun to be around? Just imagine if heaven was a place of boasting. I kind of imagine it like this. Uh, I love watching the the, uh, Olympic Games every four years. There are certain um, competitions we like to watch. And every every Olympic, they set new records, don't they? They set new world records, whether swimming or skiing or ice skating. They do quads, and then they do, I don't know, what would you call five twirls in the air? I don't know, but somebody's going to do it sooner or later. They go faster. They do more. And I've often wondered, wouldn't it be interesting to compare today's Olympics, the Olympiads of today, with the Olympiads of 1896 when they restarted the Olympics? Or even go back to Athens, Greece. There'd be no comparison. 
You see, that's what heaven would be like if we got to heaven and it was because of your own ability to get there. One, I'd never make it because the competition, the bar of competition would go higher and higher and higher. I'd never make it. But you know what? Heaven wouldn't be heaven. It'd be pure hell. It'd be filled with so many arrogant and boasting people you'd get so sick of being there. So Paul says, where's the boasting? There's no boasting. It's, it's excluded. It's done. You see, Heaven has nothing to do with your ability to get there. It has everything to do with your faith in Christ. And heaven is not filled with a bunch of arrogant, boasting people, but humble people. If you ever had the opportunity to go to Israel, I'd encourage you to go to the Church of the Nativity. And one of the first things you'll notice, and you'll never forget, as you go to the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, where Jesus traditionally was born, that birthplace, as you enter the church of the nativity, one of the things you have to do is you have to bow down low in order to go into the door, the gate. It's often thought that maybe that gate was built low so nobody on horse could go in. But I think there's a greater lesson. I think the lesson is this. All who approach Christ must bow down and humble themselves to come to him. And the same thing is true for you and for me. One of the greatest things that you'll struggle with to give up in your life is your pride. It is amazing to me sometimes I'll ask someone, do you want to trust Christ? And they say, yeah, I think I do, but I'm not sure I want to. Why? It ultimately comes down to their pride because they cannot surrender their lives to Christ. And yet the Bible very clearly teaches it's only when we admit that our sin in our lives, we humble ourselves before God, we come into his presence and seek his forgiveness, that we find that forgiveness that our hearts long for. This morning we're going to take communion. As we do, I want to invite you to do this. Maybe you've never surrendered your heart to Christ. Humble yourself before him. Even as I'm talking about this morning, some of you may say, no, I'm not that bad of a sinner. I'm not that bad. But God says, yes, you are. And there's nothing good that you can do to outdo that sin to make it to heaven. The only way to heaven is through trusting Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There's only one way to heaven, folks. And that's through your faith in Jesus Christ. This morning as we prepare to take communion, I want to remind you this table is not the table of this church. It's the Lord's table. And God says only one way to sit at this table, and that is through faith in Christ. This morning I want to invite you, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you've never trusted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, today's the day to do that. And I want to invite you to do just that. But maybe you're here today and you have trusted Christ, and you know that you've given your life to Christ. But you also know there are things in your life that are like a wall between you and God. They're interfering in your relationship. Don't cheat, treat God's grace cheaply. Confess that sin, whatever it is, whatever those walls are between you and God. Confess them before God. Humble yourself and ask Him to forgive you of those sins. Get your life right with Him as you take communion this morning. Maybe there's something wrong you have with another person. And maybe you're here today saying, you know, I, I'm not sure I could take communion. There's just something unresolved in this relationship that 
that I haven't done what I need to do, then don't take communion this morning. Resolve that problem first, then take communion. So this morning as we take communion, I want to remind you, this table reminds us of the great sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for you. This table is your table. It's God's invitation to you. It's a reminder that Jesus gave his very life as a sacrificial atonement, a substitutional atonement in your place for all your sin. That's grace. That's love. And he did that for you. And all your sins are forgiven when you place your faith in Christ. Will you come with me right now before God's throne of grace and prayer? Will you allow God the Holy Spirit to do the work in your heart to prepare you for this table? And maybe you've never trusted Christ before. Would you do that this morning? I'll pray and invite you to do that with me as we pray.